Our kids have said to us since we moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, the values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See why CNBC ranks Minnesota number four best state to live and work. A great place to work, an even better place to live. ExploreMinnesota.com slash live. Hi YouTube, it's Joshua Miles and welcome back to my channel. Today's video is going to be yet another solved case for my Curious Case series, a case actually from Michigan in the United States. Make sure you're subscribed to this channel and that you've hit that bell icon so you can be notified every single time that I post a brand new Curious Case episode just like this one. But before we delve into this video though, I'd just like to give a massive thank you to the people over at Magellan TV for partnering up with me to bring you today's episode. It's brands like Magellan TV that make episodes like this possible and I implore you to go click the link at the top of the description or the link in the pinned comments and go give them some support for helping keep this channel afloat. I've spoken about Magellan TV countless times before on this channel and it is honestly one of my favorite ways to wind down before bed in the evening by just putting on one of the many documentaries in their massive collection. I'll be honest, I sometimes put on a Magellan TV documentary, climb into bed and drift away to sleep. They have true crime, history, science, space and nature documentaries available to stream on demand on their service, which is perfect for when you want to expand your knowledge on a wide range of different topics. Magellan TV was created by filmmakers and their producers alongside talented curators to ensure the content available on their service is the most premium available out there. I gave you a recommendation to go watch the last time I worked with Magellan TV and if you watched that docuseries then let me know your thoughts on that series by tweeting it to me. But since then I've actually stumbled upon the documentary The Real Sherlock Holmes. This show exposes a lot of facts and truths about the man Sherlock Holmes was based upon. Dr. Joseph Bell. You can watch this documentary and so many more in 4K at no extra cost. Magellan TV have been kind enough to hook you up with a one month free trial membership. If you use the link try.magellantv.com forward slash Joshua Miles. You can find this link at the top of my description and in the pinned comments. I also just want to quickly say that my laptop has broken the laptop that I used to edit. So please excuse if the next few episodes aren't as tightly edited as usual. Uh, also, can someone tell me why laptops are so expensive nowadays? Honestly, it's a bit rude. Anyway, with all that being said, let's delve right into this case. Thank you. 
we sadly oftentimes hear of cases where a patient is killed by their doctor, whether intentionally or accidentally, but it's very rare that we stumble upon a case where the opposite occurs, a doctor murdered by their patient. In today's episode, in a tragic tale of mental illness, paranoia and murder, we're going to be going through the case of Dr. John Kemink and what exactly happened in the lead up to his death in 1992. John Kemink was born on Sunday the 4th of September 1949 in Muskegon, Michigan, the United States. Now, not all too much is known about John's early childhood, but what we do know is that in the late 60s, he attended Hope College in Holland, Michigan. He graduated in 1971 with the highest honors bachelor degree in the medical field and went on to study at the University of Michigan Medical School, graduating from there in 1975 with his medical degree. Following that, the now Dr. John Kemink went to San Francisco for his general surgical residency before returning back to the University of Michigan to complete his residency in otolaryngology and a fellowship in otology, neurotology and skull base surgery. In 1981, Dr. John started work as an instructor at the university and quickly became an assistant professor in 1982, associate professor in 1986, and then in 1991, he became a full professor with tenure. Over the course of his medical career, according to the University of Michigan website, Dr. Kemink authored more than 100 scholarly publications in medical journals and books, edited a textbook, and served on the editorial review boards of six medical journals. He had been a co-investigator on NIH-funded cochlear prosthesis research since 1985 and was called upon on two occasions to testify before congressional appropriations committees regarding expanded funding for deafness and communications disorders. His honors and awards were many. Dr. Kemink received the 1987 Program of the Year Award from the University of Michigan hospitals for the cochlear implant program. He was selected for the Gallons Faculty Honorary Award from 1990 to 1992 and was awarded the American Academy of Otolaryngology Head and Neck Surgery Honor Award in 1990. Most recently, in February 1992, Child Magazine named him one of the 10 best pediatric specialists in America, and Hope College honored him with its Distinguished Alumni Award. Going back to 1986, Dr. John successfully performed one of Michigan's earliest cochlear implants. His patients had unfortunately been involved in a car accident in 1970, which sadly left him deaf. The patient had almost lost hope of ever hearing again, and 16 years after losing his hearing, Dr. John changed his life with the cochlear implant surgery. Dr. John performed this life-changing surgery on a multitude of patients, including at least 45 children. In the early days of the surgery, before health insurance providers covered cochlear implants, Dr. John actually wavered the surgery fee, which was between $10,000 and $25,000 for his patients. Dr. John was described as being a fun and nice person who always made his patients feel at home. He was viewed as more of a friend than a doctor to the people he cared for. 
Another one of his patients, Linda Rotramel, was a Plymouth mother and substitute teacher who suffered from Meniere's disease. This disease caused inner ear imbalances that make you uncontrollably vomit, dizzy, and gives you ringing in the ears for as long as 12 hours. The episodes are completely devastating to those who have the illness. And for Linda, she had suffered from the disease for 15 years. She'd actually tried a multitude of medications that appear to have cured her illness twice, but it always came back. That was until she underwent a delicate operation to fix a nerve in her ear by a doctor who was trained under Dr. John. Dr. John being the one who pioneered the technique. These are just a few examples of the many people's lives that Dr. John changed for the better. Another one of his patients came to him in 1989 with an inner ear imbalance disorder. This patient was 65-year-old Chester Lee Posby. Unfortunately for Chester, his treatment wasn't quite as straightforward as some might assume. He underwent a series of medications to try and aid in his inner ear imbalance, but his lack of recovery and reactivity to the medications that were known to work baffled the specialists that he had seen. Sadly, Chester's illness continued to get worse and worse, and his episodes became more and more severe. On the 18th of June, 1992, during a routine appointment that a now 68-year-old Chester had with Dr. John, he informed the doctor that he had actually developed a pain in his ear on top of the other symptoms that the imbalance caused him. This was of particular concern to Dr. John as such a sudden development of an ear pain could be signs of trouble. So Dr. John told Chester to see how the pain develops over the next month until the next routine appointment, but also told him to phone up the practice if it gets any worse. On Tuesday the 23rd of June 1992, Chester phoned up and booked an emergency appointment at the practice where his doctor, Dr. John, worked. He told the receptionist that his ear pain had gotten much, much worse, and he was getting very, very concerned. An emergency appointment was then squeezed in and booked for Thursday the 25th of June at just after midday. Chester had arrived at the practice early and at five minutes past midday, he was called from the waiting room into the first floor examination room where Dr. John was waiting. Just a mere couple of seconds after Chester had entered Dr. John's office, staff working at the practice heard a series of bangs. The staff would later testify that it sounded as if some of the medical equipment had fallen over and perhaps broken. Nurses rushed to the sound of the suspected toppled medical equipment, hoping that nobody had been injured as a result of it falling over. After all, medical equipment is very heavy. But when the nurses arrived at the door of Dr. John's office, Nothing would prepare them for the nightmare they would see inside. The nurses actually passed Chester as he walked away from the room back down the corridor. Dr. John had been shot four times by a semi-automatic handgun in the head, shoulder, and abdomen. In the corridor just outside the room laid the gun that had been used in the attack. Unfortunately, despite the doctor's and nurse's best efforts in saving 42-year-old Dr. John's life, one of the most talented doctors and one of the early pioneers of the life-changing cochlear implant technology, Dr. John heartbreakingly succumbed to his injuries and passed away at 12.38 p.m. Police officers were quick to arrive 
arrive on the scene of the crime and managed to apprehend Chester as he left the medical practice. But why had Chester murdered Dr. John in cold blood? What was the motive? To answer those questions, we first had to take a look at who Chester Posby was. Chester Leo Posby was born on the 10th of July, 1923 in Michigan. As with Dr. John, not much is known about his upbringing or early childhood. But what we do know is that he married his first wife considerably young, and he actually went on to have two children with his first wife, a son and a daughter, though the marriage soon fell apart and the couple subsequently divorced. At the age of 48 in 1971, Chester married his second wife in Nevada, though as with his first marriage and despite their best efforts in the early 90s, Chester's marriage to his second wife came to an end and the couple divorced. Chester had worked as a car salesman at a Cadillac Peugeot dealership in Detroit for a number of years up until 1977, which is when he retired. In 1976, though, the year before he retired, he actually suffered a heart attack, but ended up recovering. Following the separation from his second wife, he moved to an apartment in Clinton Township in Michigan, where he worked as a salesman at the start of 1992, six months prior to the murder. He had unfortunately lost all contact with his now adult children due to the divorce, uh, and according to a neighbor, both of his separations were very messy. According to some sources, Chester's ear imbalance disorder put a massive strain on his family, causing many arguments between Chester and his ex-wives, uh, and even led him to not being able to work properly. Estranged from his children and alone at the age of 67, he was described by his neighbors at the apartment complex where he lived as being somewhat of a loner. The neighbors that lived around Chester seemed to be split between two different views of him, one being that he had a very quick temper and the other being that he was just a regular nice guy. One of these neighbors told the media that Chester was a a supportive work environment can help everyone working in schools stay resilient. Just finding people that can reassure me that I'm doing my best and that there are people out there who understand me and can help me through these situations. You are not alone. Leaning on each other, uh, colleagues in education is, is essential. You have to. We take care of one another. Find what helps at cdcfoundation.org slash how right now. That's cdcfoundation.org slash how right now a shy man who was kind to her children and never appeared to be the cranky individual depicted by some of the other neighbors. Another neighbor told the media that he had heard Chester yell at some of the kids that played in the complex, but he had never never gotten violent. A teenager who lived close to Chester's apartment further told the media that Chester was a weirdo who complained about the littlest of things. On one occasion, the teenager was lying out on the grass basking in the sun and Chester shouted at him to stay out of the sun and to water the grass instead of just lying on it. Yet another neighbor described an account where Chester had almost knocked their front door down as the neighbor's radio was so loud that he couldn't hear his television. Jim Farishone was more than just a neighbor to 
Chester. He had actually aided Chester with some physical therapy almost daily for around a month. You see, Chester had knocked on his door late one night and asked Jim for some help as his balance was really bad. He showed Jim exactly what he needed help with, an exercise that he had learnt from physical therapists to aid in his balance and Jim did as Chester asked. Chester's ear imbalance disorder played havoc on his life and the repeated failure of medications to help him along with his failed marriages evidently began to take a major toll on his mental health. It seems like a fairly straightforward motive. Was Chester angry and frustrated at his doctor for not curing his illness yet and then took it out on him through murder? No. The real motive was far more rooted in a paranoid conspiracy. You see, Chester had previously undergone treatments by a different doctor called Dr. Proctor for his illness, but the treatments had sadly failed, and Chester had begun to believe that Dr. Proctor had deliberately damaged his quote-unquote balance nerve, and for that, Chester absolutely hated this doctor. Dr. John had decided that surgery on his ear might be the best next step in treating his imbalance disorder and had actually referred him to Dr. Proctor for the surgery. As a result of this referral, Chester believes that Dr. John Chemnick and Dr. Proctor were conspiring together to perform a brain operation that would kill him. Chester didn't want to die and didn't want any of the other patients to die at the hands of a pair of doctors. And so, according to him, in an effort to bring the conspiracy to light and expose the truth of what he believed was going on, he decided to kill Dr. John. In the regular appointments that Chester had with Dr. John the week before the murders, when he had first complained about his ear pain, Chester had actually brought with him the semi-automatic handgun with the intent of killing Dr. John at that appointment, but he backed out at the last minute. He then managed to talk himself back into the murder and subsequently booked the emergency appointment where he murdered Dr. John Kemming in cold blood blood, quote, to protect other patients from harm, unquote. The trial against Chester commencing in September of 1993 was a bit strange in my opinion. It was indisputable that Chester had shot and murdered Dr. John, and so Chester was charged with murder in the first degree, and he actually pled guilty to first degree murder, but mentally ill of first degree murder. This meant that the defense had to prove that Chester was, in fact, mentally ill at the time of the murder. From the time since he was arrested and when the trial finally commenced, Chester had been on a course of antipsychotic medications. Four expert witnesses testified in the trial, three of which testified for the defense, and one testified for the prosecution. The defense was trying to prove that Chester wasn't criminally responsible for the murder of Dr. John Kemink, as he was legally insane at the time of the homicide. Chester was diagnosed by a psychiatrist as suffering from paranoid persecutory delusional disorder, 
and testified in court that Chester wouldn't have had the capacity to recognize the wrongfulness of his actions and thus wouldn't have been able to conform his conduct within the law. A second psychiatrist testified that Chester, according to his own diagnosis, suffered from persecutory delusional disorder and that, as with the first psychiatrist, did not have the ability to distinguish wrongfulness in his actions. The third psychiatrist testified the same findings as the previous two, but stated that Chester was actually suffering from paranoid delusional disorder. Paranoid delusional disorder is a type of serious mental illness called a psychosis, in which a person cannot tell what is real from what is imagined. The main feature of this disorder is the presence of delusions, which are unshakable beliefs in something untrue. Whereas persecutory delusional disorder occurs when someone believes others are out to harm them, despite evidence to the contrary. Whether people with this condition think co-workers are sabotaging their work, or they believe the government is trying to kill them, Persecutory delusions vary in severity. Some individuals with persecutory delusions believe they have to go to great lengths to save themselves and stay safe, and consequently they may struggle to function normally. Whichever the case, the defense pushed to the courts that Chester was suffering from some form of delusional disorder at the time of the homicide, and thus wasn't criminally responsible for the murder. The fourth psychiatrist, the one who testified for the prosecution, did agree that Chester was mentally ill at the time of the shooting, but he believed that he did have the capacity to distinguish the wrongfulness of his actions, believing him to be legally sane at the time. He went on to testify that he believes that the shooting had nothing to do with Chester's delusional disorder, but was rather carried out due to Chester's anger at Dr. John Kemink for betraying his trust and referring him to the other doctor. As previously stated, Chester had been on antipsychotic medication for his delusional disorders, and in an interesting move from the defense team, they requested that Chester stopped taking this medication so that the jury could observe him as he was at the time of the shooting. The court actually denied this request on the grounds that the state's interest in maintaining Chester's trial competency outweighed this. Chester had only been found fit to stand trial due to the antipsychotic medications he had been taking, and without it, he would be unfit, and it would therefore violate his right to a fair trial. The request was then resubmitted, stating that Chester could stop taking his medication on a Friday, giving three days of not being medicated and allowing the medication to wear off, and then allowing the jury to observe him in his unmedicated state on the following Monday, though this request was again denied by the court. Ultimately, the jury came to their verdict. They found Chester Posby guilty but mentally ill of first-degree murder. He was subsequently sentenced to life imprisonment without the possibility of parole. An appeal was then filed against the sentencing, as is Chester's right, seeking a reduced sentence due to Chester being criminally uh, not responsible for the murder, but this appeal was ultimately denied. According to some sources, Chester Posby 
passed away behind bars on the 11th of July 1998 at the age of 75. Dr. John Kemink was survived by his wife of 10 years, who was a nurse at the same medical center where he was murdered, though on the day of the murder, she was on maternity leave looking after the couple's newborn second child. Dr. John was also survived by his six-year-old daughter. As previously mentioned, Child Magazine named Dr. John among the top 10 pediatric specialists in the United States. Now, interestingly, this isn't the only case where a patient suffering from delusions has murdered their doctor. According to an article in the Washington Post, on the 21st of July 2011, a pair of psychiatrists were having lunch together discussing work. And one of the psychiatrists, 71-year-old Mark Lawrence, told his colleague that he was very concerned about one of his patients. He explains that this patient, a woman, had become very, very paranoid and begun to blame all of her problems on him. Mark's colleague sensibly told him that he needs to get this patient a consultation from somebody else if she was getting paranoid about him. And Mark agreed to this. He said this was a good idea. But not one day later, Mark Lawrence would be dead. His patients, who the media reported to have been called Barbara Newman, had turned up to Mark's family home at about 4.15pm on the 22nd of July 2011. You see, Mark Lawrence was actually retired from clinical practice, but he still saw a handful of patients at his home office. He had received his degree in 1961 from Amherst College and his medical degree from Harvard Medical School in 1965. Mark then went on to train in mental health centers and psychiatric facilities. Following that, he began to teach workshops for therapists at a center which he co-founded in 1984. He was heavily praised by the medical community for his compassion in treating patients and in his medical practice. But when Barbara Newman showed up at his house that fateful afternoon, she wasn't intending on having a therapy session. She had brought a gun with her, and with Mark's wife still in the house, she shot and murdered Mark before turning the gun on herself in a murder-suicide. Violence from patients towards medical professionals isn't a mental illness exclusive occurrence. Violence can occur in all walks of the practice, from the emergency room to specialized wards. Though, thankfully, the vast majority of cases do not end in the same tragic way as either of the two cases discussed today. And that's everything I have for you in today's episode. Let me know what you think of these cases down in the comment section below. Today's episode is truly one of uh, multiple devastations and multiple tragedies. Today's episode is a little bit shorter than my usual content due to my computer being broken, but don't worry, my longer episodes will be back very, 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 very soon. Again, a massive thank you to Magellan TV for partnering up with me to bring you this episode. Make sure you show Magellan TV some love for supporting this channel and allowing me to bring you more episodes by clicking the link at the top of the description or the link in the pinned comment to get your one month free trial on their service. 
make sure you're subscribed to this channel and you've hit that bell icon so you can be notified every single time that I post a brand new Curious Case episode just like this one. Also jump over to my second channel and give a quick subscribe over there too if you want. You don't have to, I'm not going to tell you what to do. My social media handles are at it's Joshua Miles on both Twitter and Instagram. All my sources as always can be found in the description box down below and with all that being said I'll see you in the next case. Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See why CNBC ranks Minnesota number four best state to live and work. A great place to work, an even better place to live. ExploreMinnesota.com slash live.